0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we looked at the time of the Oxumite Negus Arma, generally regarded as the last Oxumite king to rule over the great, powerful Oxumite empire of old, before it declined into a mere regional power. However, despite the successes of Arma's reign, he proved unable to reverse the civilizational freefall that plagued Oxum at the moment. As promised by last episode's ominous cliffhanger ending, this episode things will somehow get even worse. Over the next three centuries, Oxumite civilization will undergo a wellspring of radical changes. The entire economic and social basis of the mercantile Oxumite economy, once the envy of the world, would have to reorient itself entirely if it was to survive the coming centuries. And, one of the greatest causes of the decline of Oxumite economic fortunes was the rise of a new hegemonic trade power in the region to replace them. This episode, Oxum finally meets its match in maritime trade, as we witness the birth of the Somali mercantile age. Episode 25, The Somali Era. We resume our story in the year 630. Arma, king of Oxum, has just died. In his place, the throne was passed to an enigmatic king named Quastantinos, possibly Arma's brother, but more likely his son. The throne that Quastantinos inherited, however, was not the throne of the powerful trade kingdom that once dominated the Red Sea. No, Oxum by this time was a shell of its former self. The city of Oxum itself, while still a relatively important hub of trade and artisanship, was surrounded by increasingly useless, exhausted soil, and was starting to become an economic liability. After centuries of expansion, the outskirts of town had seen their forests cut down and converted to charcoal that powered the furnaces, kilns, and ovens of the artisans that lived in the city. Remember a few episodes back, when I mentioned how a global fall in temperature had disrupted the monsoon winds of East Africa, and how the agricultural damage from that shift caused the Oxumite Negus to desperately try to increase food production to avoid famine. Well, this intensification of food output, while it was successful in alleviating the famine, caused serious soil degradation in the area surrounding the capital city. This collapse in soil health combined with deforestation to form a nasty combo, and created a crisis of erosion, and soon the outskirts of Oxum had become agricultural wastelands, incapable of producing any valuable crops. Throughout the early and mid-600s, the city gradually declined in importance with each passing year. Arma, for example, spent increasingly little time in the capital, and even chose not to be buried there. Instead, he was buried in the city of Wukro rather than Oxum, as was tradition. Now, the reign of Quastantinos is among the most obscure eras in Oxumite history, but what little we know about it says that it's also one of the most important. His reign is a horizon in Oxumite civilization, and, as he first came to the throne, we enter a new period in Oxumite history, what I call the Oxumite late period. While we've been talking a lot about the end of Oxum as a great power a lot throughout the last episodes, the end of the reign of Arma not only represented the end of Oxum as a regional power, but also as the wealthy mercantile economy we've come to know. From now until the end of Oxum as a civilization, the empire would remain just one of many kingdoms in East Africa, no longer even the dominant hegemon within its own region of the Ethiopian highlands. The economy of metal coinage was replaced with a system of pseudo-bartering, in which colorful cloth and salt served as the primary forms of currency. And, as Oxum's economy deteriorated, so too did the central government. In the place of this broken, and powerless central government, regional lords, princes, and strongmen became increasingly powerful. These lords, while still submitting to the Negus as vassals, were essentially independent in terms of daily government. Unlike in the days of Caleb, when the Negus could personally order the creation of an imperial army essentially on his own, these lords and their subjects would from now on form the basis of Oxumite militaries. Now, this might not sound like a big deal at first, but it really is. If Quastantinos wants to fulfill the basic duties of the state, he could only do so if a substantial portion of the noble class consented to his request to raise armies. In a sense, he was only a king as long as the nobility permitted him to remain as such the system of feudalism had come to oxum now i don't want to give you the false impression that this is some sort of hard line in the middle of history it's not like oxum was a flourishing centralized empire one day and then boom feudal kingdom the next as we've seen throughout the series there has been a gradual decay in central authority throughout oxum since really the days of Ela Amidas or even caleb arguably If anything, the Aksumite economy has been incapable of supporting such a centralized state for quite a few decades now. Rather than some sort of collapse, the more reserved reigns of Quastantinos and his successors were the inevitable outcome of such a long-term decline. However, while Aksumite society was already decaying into a state of feudalism, something was happening to the north that would hasten this decline even further. In 639, the armies of the Rashidun Caliphate crossed the border into Egypt, then a possession of the Roman Empire. Under the command of Emir ibn al-As, a recent Muslim convert who, yes, was the same guy who had come to Oxum to demand that they surrender Muslim refugees last episode, the Arab army annihilated the Roman garrisons defending the province. Within just three years of fighting, the entirety of Egypt fell under Arab rule. The country's new Arab rulers established a correspondingly new capital, Fustat, a settlement which would eventually grow into the modern city of Cairo. Now, the fall of Egypt was not initially a very big deal to the Aksumites. Yes, Rome and Aksum were close allies, but Aksum wasn't exactly unfriendly with the caliphate, either. Ever since Aksum had protected Muslim refugees in the 620s, the Arabs had proven quite friendly to Aksumite interests. The Coptic Christian community of Egypt, who enjoyed incredibly close ties to the Aksumite church, were happy to find that the Muslim conquerors were surprisingly quite tolerant. In fact, while the Romans had considered the Copts to be heretics and regularly engaged in sporadic persecution, the Caliphate, at least initially, proved happy to let the Copts continue doing their own thing as long as they paid a special tax for non-Muslims, called the Jizya. Egypt's new Arab governors were even happy to allow the Patriarch of Alexandria to continue appointing the Abuna of the Ethiopian Church. However, while the Arab conquest of Egypt didn't change things much at first, it would have immense effects on Aksum in the long term. While the relationship between the Caliphate and Aksum was initially positive, these relations gradually soured over time. Specifically, the institution of that Jizya tax I mentioned earlier started to cause some problems for Aksum's merchant class. The new Muslim authorities in Egypt were happy to allow Aksumite merchants to continue trading in Muslim-controlled cities. That is, if they paid the Jizya tax like any other non-Muslims. It's worth noting that the Jizya was justified by claiming that it was not an exploitative tax, who was rather a fair trade between Muslim elites and their Christian subjects. In exchange for having to pay the jizya, Muslim authorities would exempt non-Muslims from conscription for the army, and they were exempt from having to pay the zakah, basically a mandatory charity payment made by Muslims. So, it really wasn't all that sour of a deal if you really think about it. Instead of paying one tax, you just pay another, and you don't even have to serve in the military. So, because these Aksumite merchants were operating in Muslim territories, weren't serving in the army, and weren't paying zakah, the authorities of the Rashidun Caliphate figured that it was only fair that the Aksumites would have to pay the jizya tax in addition to their normal tariffs. This, however, did not fly well with the Aksumite merchants. Remember, these guys have been dealing with a struggling economy for decades now, and now the new authorities in Egypt want them to basically pay another new tax just for having a different religion? So these merchants decided instead to abandon trade in favor of a new industry. You see, this new industry is a lot like trading, in that you sail from place to place on a boat, except you don't pay any taxes, and instead of trading your own wares, you instead just steal other people's. Within a few years, Adulis was now the largest haven of piracy on the Red Sea. Now, in previous eras... Constantinos would have simply rolled up to a duelist and dealt with these pirates with ease. I mean, while these guys were Oxumites, they were also raiding the ships of the remaining legitimate Oxumite merchants too, so it's not like he wanted them to be there, and this is far from the first time that the Auxomite state had dealt with pirates. However, this was not a previous era, and while Constantinos could still probably convince some nobles to help him deal with the problem, he had bigger things to worry about than some pirates. So, for several years, the pirates of Adulis rampaged unabated throughout the Red Sea, raiding Aksumite and Muslim ships alike. This, however, caught the attention of Umar, the current caliph of the Rashidun Caliphate. In 640, he sent a naval expedition to Adulis to crush the pirates, and they excelled at their job, sacking and burning the entire city in the process. Now, while pirates had not been worth Quasantinos' time the naval invasion of one of Aksum's most important cities definitely was. But while Quastantinos was eventually able to round up a large enough army to send to Adulis and repel the invading Muslim forces, it was too late. Most of Aksum's most significant port had already been destroyed. With this raid, Aksumite maritime power was crippled for decades. For the next 60 years, Aksumite merchants were not able to raise a substantial fleet of ships, and by the time that the Aksumite merchants recovered, it would be too late for them, as a new power had already risen during this time that would eventually surpass Aksum as the naval hegemon of the Red Sea. Somalia and its people have come up a few times throughout this season. I gave a brief rundown of Somalia's geography during the season's introductory episode, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned that Caleb contracted a small group of Somali mercenaries during his invasion of Himyar. However, given how important the Somalis will become in the story of late Aksum, I think it's finally time I explain what's been going on there this whole time. Now, much like with Ethiopia, I think I should first start by making it clear that when I'm talking about Somalis, I'm not necessarily just talking about the modern Republic of Somalia. While the area composing modern Somalia is where most Somalis live today, historically, Somali-speaking peoples have lived throughout much of the eastern horn of Africa, including parts of modern Ethiopia and Djibouti. Now, at the time we're discussing the Somali people were not united into any one overarching kingdom, but rather lived in a series of city-states and petty kingdoms. I'll be posting a map on the podcast blog to help you follow along if you'd like. Throughout ancient times, city-states like Opone, Berbera, and Mosilon to the north played host to an important class of maritime merchants, who built impressive ships that would ride the predictable monsoon winds between East Africa and India. Once in India, these merchants would load their ships with various precious wares, the most important being spices like ginger, cardamom, and the most precious good of all, cinnamon, and then make a return voyage to East Africa. There, they would sell these spices for a slight profit to the Aksumites, who would then in turn sell it for their own larger profit to the Romans. To the south, the city-states of the coastal Chebel River Basin, like Sarapion, Essena, and Nikon, trafficked in the exotic goods of the southern African coast. Including exotic animals, tortoise shells, ivory, and cloves, which they shipped north to, you guessed it, the Oxumites, who would also resell these goods for a profit. However, while these Somali cities had turned this trade into some moderate economic prosperity, a common factor held them back from reaching their full potential Oxum. Oxumite naval control of the Red Sea meant that if these Somali merchants ever wanted their goods to end up in the hands of wealthy buyers in Egypt or the Mediterranean, they would have to go through Oxamite hands first. Because these Somali merchants would have to sell to Oxamites as a middleman, they were only making a fraction of the potential profits they could earn from shipping directly from India to the Romans and vice versa. But no Somalis saw their fortunes dampened by Aksumite ambition more than the Somalis of Avalites. Avalites was a small but wealthy city on what was now the border of modern Somalia and Djibouti. When Aksum was first rising as a power, Avalites was one of the first important cities in East Africa, an equal and even an early rival to the ascending city-state. But once Oxum had conquered Adulis and Yeha, it was clear that this relationship had become unbalanced. During the expansionist reign of Godorot in the early 3rd century, Avalites was annexed into the Oxumite Empire. There, they would remain under direct Oxumite control for the next 400 years, which brings us back to our story in the 600s AD. Now, Somalia today is an overwhelmingly Muslim country, with about 99.9% of Somalis practicing some sect of Islam. However, this was not yet true in the 620s AD. The major religions of their neighbors, like Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Judaism, never caught on among the Somalis, besides a few fringe conversions. Instead, the Somali city-states of the time practiced an unusual local religion. The religion is best described as henotheistic, believing in multiple gods but believing that only one, the sky god wak is worthy of worship. I'll talk about this strange pre-Islamic Somali religion in the newest episode on our Patreon, where you can access it by supporting the show for just $1.99 per month. By supporting us, you also get to vote in patron-exclusive polls about what subject matter we cover on each episode of the show. Thank you to those who are already supporting the show on Patreon. Me and my editor put a ridiculous amount of work into researching, writing, and editing this monster of a podcast. So we really rely on the support of generous people like you. So, thanks. But in 623, around the same time that the Prophet Muhammad was first setting up shop in Medina, Islam was introduced to Somalia for the first time. The Masjid al-Qiblatayn Mosque was built in the city of Avalites, making it the second oldest mosque built outside of Arabia, beat only by a small mosque built near Massawa by the refugees of the first Hijra. Perhaps, due to the similarity of their already pseudo-monotheistic traditional faith and the new Islamic faith, Islam spread quickly among the Somalis. I mean, they were already basically worshipping one god anyways, so how hard could it be to just write off pre-existing minor gods as demons? By the 630s, many of the elites in northern Somalia had already converted to Islam, making Somalis the first people outside of Arabia to convert to Islam en masse. And, this rapid conversion to Islam proved to be an incredibly profitable decision for the Somalis. Conversion to Islam immediately gave Somali merchants a distinct advantage over their Aksumite competitors. When trading with the Arabs, who were now a serious power in the Red Sea region, the Somalis no longer needed to pay the jizya tax, meaning that they could sell goods at a cheaper price than the Aksumites, while still making a profit. When the Rashidun Caliphate conquered Egypt, the Somali advantage became significantly more pronounced. The Oxumite merchants who long dominated the Red Sea trade were now isolated from the Romans, and would have to work through Arab intermediaries if they wanted to sell their wares in the Mediterranean marketplace. And the Raid of Adulis in 640 was the exact opening that Somali merchants needed to truly cement their place as the new dominant merchants in the Indian Ocean. For the next millennium, the ships of various Somali cities, emirates, and empires would dominate this lucrative trade route. The end of Oxumite naval and mercantile dominance was devastating not only to the Empire of Oxum, but was especially consequential in the capital city. Earlier, I said that Oxum the city was essentially agriculturally useless, but was still making up for it by being an important hub of trades and crafts. Well, you can scratch that last part. Now that Somali merchants were out competing the Oxumites wherever they went, the city of Oxum was now only a city of religious and historical importance which bore nothing of political or economic significance. While the city had already been slipping in its importance for about a half century, in the 640s Quastantinos made a permanent decision that would have been unthinkable in previous centuries. He moved the Aksumite capital away from Aksum. Moving away from the western highlands, his new capital was located in the small city of Jarma. This city's exact current location is unknown, but what we do know is that it fell somewhere within the region of Eastern Tigray, likely in the modern sub-region of Anderta. Now, the decision to move the capital from Aksum is admittedly kind of melancholic. No matter the time period, no matter who was on the throne, and no matter how things were going in the empire, the city of Aksum has kind of served as our home base for the season. We've seen the city evolve from a hamlet in the woods to a major cosmopolitan urban center, Leaving this important city honestly feels like the end of an era. However, Quastantinos was not considering the feelings of future podcasters when he made this decision. And, despite how strange it feels to say that the Oxumite Empire is no longer based in Oxum, this decision was the correct one to take. The small gold mines surrounding the city of Oxum had been exhausted a long time ago, while the mines of Jarma were still active. While the soil of Oxum was now worthless exhausted clay, The soil surrounding Jarma was still fertile and ready for planting. Quastantinos was never an Oxumite king who was well established in the historical record. We're not even sure exactly when he died, and he never minted any coins that gave us any sort of insight into his personality, motivations, and beliefs. However, the decision he made to move the capital of Oxum to Jarma would have immense consequences in Oxumite history. Now based in its new home in eastern Tigray, Oxum began a period of surprising stability. Despite everything the Empire had gone through in recent years, the burning of a duelist, the loss of its trade hegemony, and the rise of a new rival to the East which was out-competing it in trade, Quastantinos had finally managed to at least slow the Aksumite decline. If not for this decision, it's possible that the Aksumite Empire would have collapsed here and now, in the 640s AD, wiping away the 300 remaining years of Aksumite history from existence. However, it's worth noting that the age that began with Quastantinos' reign, the late Oxumite period, was also a dark age in Oxumite history. While Quastantinos was quite the enigmatic figure himself, his successors would take this obscurity to a whole new level. Throughout the late 7th century until really the very last days of the empire, the late history of Oxum is no longer kept in monastery texts or engravings, but in oral traditions and the hearsay of the societies that followed it. Join us next week as we begin our first foray into the mysterious Oxamite Dark Age. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode and all others are brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Aaron L., Sandro, Kevin Johnson, Iofagbamie, and many more. Myself and my editor each put about 20 hours of work each week into this show between researching, writing, recording, and editing, and the support of you guys on Patreon is really the engine that keeps the show running. So, thank you.